So about a month ago, before the weather got cool, my wife suggested, why don't you take Cade, which is our son, to Holiday World for the day? He had been talking about going to Holiday World all summer, specifically since he saw a commercial about the new water coaster called Cheetah Chase. Every single day he said, Dad, can we go to Cheetah Chase? Dad, can we go to Cheetah Chase? And so we spent a Saturday at Holiday World. It had been a while since he or I had been on some roller coasters. So I checked out the Holiday World website and they made a suggestion how to do the four roller coasters in the park. They said, start with the Raven and then go to the Legend followed by the voyage and then cap it all off with Thunderbird. So uh, I pulled out the inline reservation app and I made a reservation for the Raven. And we got on that ride and we did the ride and as we came into the station after the end of the ride, Cade raised his hands above his head like, that was awesome. And so I quickly made a reservation for the legend and we did the legend. And then right after that, we did the voyage and I've never been more relieved than when my son said, dad, I'm ready to go to the water park, which meant we were not going to the Thunderbird. By that point, my brain was a little wacky, all right? And so uh, we made our way over to the water park, did Cheetah Chase and some other rides. We had an awesome day. But if you're worshiping with us online or here in Newburgh, you know that if you've ridden a roller coaster before, that next to waiting in line for who knows how long to get on a roller coaster, the longest part of the ride is making that climb up the first hill. You know what I'm talking about? You're sitting there, you might be clenched onto that bar in front of you. You hear the ting, 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 ting of the chain. And you kind of hope like, is this thing gonna make it, right? And then you get up to the very top of the hill and it, depending on where you are in the train of cars, it's that law feeling, like until all the cars make it over the hill and then whoosh, there you go, throughout speeding the rest of the ride, right? I thought about that experience as I was preparing this week for this message because over the past two and a half months, we have been on the long journey through about an hour or two of Jesus' life. John chapter 14, all, or 13, all the way through 17, record one scene in the life of Jesus. He's in the upper room. He's celebrating the Passover meal with his followers. He is sharing with them the things that are really important to him. And he also is praying for them, like we looked in chapter 17. And over this past year of our year-long journey through the Gospel of John, we're trying to learn how to live and love like Jesus. There's no other moment in the life and ministry of Jesus that John has spent more time with. I wonder if you feel like the anticipation growing. I wonder if you feel the tension mounting because with chapter 18, it gets fast, fast. I mean, the passage of time, the drama and the intensity increases tremendously. In fact, this moment in John 18 is paralleled in Matthew 16, in Mark 14, and in Luke 22. And in this moment, we see very similar details and each of these gospel writers capture the nuances of this moment so that you and I can have a, a full understanding of all that's taken place, but even more importantly, the impact and significance of what's happening. You know, it's Martin Kaler who says that all the Gospels are actually just a, a passion narrative. Now, we're transitioning from the farewell discourse into these passion, this passion narrative. And it's called that because the passion, that word comes from a Latin word, passio, which means suffering. And in John 18, we actually begin to see the account of Jesus' uh, suffering and also his death. John, it seems like, has been waiting the entire book 
to share this exact story with us that's happening. And he wants us to understand exactly not just what happened, but the significance of it. We're going to sprinkle in some details from Matthew, Mark, Luke, but I'm going to focus most of our attention on what John has to say. Um, So if you will, jump in with me, John 18. Pull out a copy of the Bible or open up a a Bible app. Let's begin reading with John chapter 18, verse 1, where we see Jesus being betrayed by Judas. John 18, 1 says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew this place because Jesus had often been there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. When John says that they, after finished praying, it may well be that Jesus and his disciples have already left the upper room. They've been meandering through the streets of Jerusalem. They've now crossed the Kindred Valley and they are on the other side of the hill on the Mount of Olives, which contains a garden known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's the setting for what we see take place initially, even though John doesn't mention it specifically. It was customary to spend time meditating and praying after celebrating the Passover meal. And so Jesus takes his disciples with him, 11 now, to this place. They had been multiple times so they can do just that. John does not capture the instructions that Jesus gave his disciples to watch and pray. He also doesn't record the prayer that Jesus prays recorded by all the other three gospels. When he looks to heaven and says, Father, if it's possible, Or Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will be done, but yours. Knowing where to find Jesus, we see Judas arrive to the garden and he immediately goes up and he kisses Jesus on the cheek, not as a sign of honor, but as a signal to the entourage that he has with him. It's made up of Roman soldiers, an attachment. A detachment could be as many as 600 soldiers filling the Garden of Gethsemane in that moment. He also brought with him some of the chief priests and Pharisees' secret service or the security detail. And they're there to arrest a revolutionary, which could come with some resistance either from him or also from his followers. Well, let's see how it plays out. Continue with me in verse 4 now. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of these you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it out and struck the high, servant, high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? We see in this moment that Jesus, his identity is questioned. Jesus is not a resistant revolutionary. He's not a moping martyr either. He's confident in what God's plan is for his life. He's proactive toward those who are approaching him, all that will transpire. We see in the other accounts of the gospel that that Jesus is actually summoned by Judas, that Judas approaches him. But John records that Jesus steps out. 
He's resolute. He's in control. In verse 6, Jesus identifies himself with a very familiar statement. He says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. When he says, I am he, he's using the exact same words as he has multiple times throughout the Gospel of John, identifying himself, not just by raising his hand saying, hey, I'm who you're looking for, but actually making a statement of his deity, of his oneness with God. It's the same word when he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And several other I am statements we've seen in John. But I wonder, did you catch what happened when he said this? When Jesus says, I am, all of the motley crew that was there to arrest him fell to the ground. Now, some commentators want to dismiss that as just they were, you know, clumsy. But I think it's the powerful response of what Scripture says happens at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. True to form, Jesus doesn't bow his back and he doesn't force his way, but instead he willingly submits to what is happening in this moment. But his ultimate concern is actually for his disciples. And he says, if you're looking for me, then give these guys no harm. It's actually a a fulfillment of a prophecy that he had made earlier in John 6, 39. I will not lose one of those that you gave to me. It's also an answer to his prayer that we saw in John 17. I have not lost any of those that you've given to me. The only exception to that was Judas. And Judas is there in this moment right now. He's carrying out the devil's scheme. Things get a little crazy at this part. Peter, true to form, he pulls out a sword. It was one of two swords that Luke 22 mentions that was among the disciples. And he whacks off the ear of one of the high priest's servant. John identifies this guy as Malchus. Everybody thinks that Peter was actually trying to cut the guy's head off. He's just known for being a fisherman more than a swordsman, right? He's uh, bold, but just has bad aim. I could be, uh, resemble those remarks. Jesus offers a stern rebuke of Peter, as well as a strong reminder of his mission. He says, I must drink the cup the Father has given me to drink. This cup is the cup of God's wrath. It's referred to in Psalm 75, verse 8, and a lot of other places. And Jesus will drink it dry. He'll do that to save you and me on the cross. And afterwards, he will proclaim, it is finished. Luke records Jesus actually healing Malchus by putting his ear back on. And Matthew and Mark note that at this moment, all the disciples abandon Jesus. Let's continue to read and see what happens next. We'll see that Jesus is arrested and bound. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man dies for the people. Jesus' arrest must have been prearranged, not just because Judas was there, but there seems to be a cooperation between the religious leaders as well as the Roman governor Pilate because of those soldiers being present. We'll get to see a little bit more about Pilate in just a few verses. Everything, though, about Jesus' arrest, his trial, even his execution, reeks of jealousy, of pride, of hatred, and of corruptness on the part of everybody involved. It's motivated and manipulated by many different desires, but ultimately, it fulfills God's plan to save the world. 
John says that Jesus is taken to Annas first. He's still considered the high priest by the Jewish people, even though he was deposed by the Roman governor Valerius Gladys in AD 15. After he was deposed, 15 or five of his sons followed him in succession, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is seated as high priest. The Jewish law designated that a high priest's appointment was for life. But the Roman uh, leadership, they thought that was way too much power to give to one person. And so they would often appoint at their discretion a new high priest as often as they wanted. This time period was filled with lots of political tension, lots of turnover. In fact, right now they're even debating uh, terms of, of a limit to terms, right? I mean, all that should sound familiar. I know this week we are on the verge of what could be one of the craziest times in the history of our country. I know many of you probably have already voted like me. Many of you, I hope, will vote be, uh, on Tuesday. And this time can be filled with lots of pressure, lots of tension, lots of anxiety. And so that's why I would encourage you to come this afternoon to our family worship time. Uh, we'll have some fun and food at 3.35, but at 5.30 we really just want to seek the heart of God and remind ourselves that we're united not by political party or even cause. We are united by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we will celebrate tonight. We'll also pray that we would remind ourselves that we're part of the kingdom of God, not the things of this world. But we're here in this world to be a light, to be salt, and to make a stand, to shine that light for Jesus Christ. I hope you'll come and join me and my family. You know, John is the only one who mentions this stop uh, with Annas. He also reminds his readers of a statement that Caiaphas made in John 11, verse 49 and 15. Caiaphas says, you know, it'd be better if one person dies instead of all the rest of us. Well, that really is a theological concept. It's called substitutionary atonement. I don't think Caiaphas knew what he was saying in that moment, but we should. We should all understand what it means for the good that one person dies instead of all the rest of us. We know that that was a statement being made about what Jesus would do for us. You know, I think there's clear indication that there was not a chance of Jesus getting a fair trial in those days because Caiaphas had already made up his mind that Jesus should die. In fact, the trial breaks many of the written laws about a fair trial. It was being held at night, which was against the rules. Jesus was being interrogated instead of witnesses called to give testimony. And there's more that we'll see in just a moment. John interrupts this kangaroo court with something that's happening simultaneously in the life of Peter. We'll see here in John 18, verses 15 through 18, that Peter denies Jesus. Read with me in verse 15. Simon Peter and other disciples were following Jesus, uh, and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold, and the servant uh, and the officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing there with them, warming himself. This other disciple mentioned here is squarely uh, historically identified as John. And the details that he provides from his eyewitness account confirm his identity. 
He seems to have a close relationship with the religious leaders. It could be because he came from a wealthy, well-known family in this area. And so he was given permissions to enter into the high priest's court, the high priest's house. He was even recognized as being a follower of Jesus. However, Peter was initially denied entrance until John spoke to that servant girl working the gate that night. And she questions Peter, are you one of Jesus' followers too? And he quickly responds, no, I'm not. That's the first of three denials that we'll see and that Jesus had predicted just a few hours before. Peter attempts in this moment just to blend into the crowd and gathers with others around a fire to keep warm. And then John picks up going back to this questioning of Jesus by Annas, where he's falsely accused by the religious leaders. Look at verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or in the temple where all the Jews heard me. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they will know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him on the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what I said that's wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus, uh, uh, let's see, the focus of inquiry by Annas surrounded Jesus' teachings as well as his followers. They were trying to trick Jesus into saying something that could be uh, grounds for him being executed, like claiming to be God or claiming to be the king. Both of those would have been a violation of Jewish law and Roman law. But in this moment, Jesus is confident. He's courageous, even in the face of political pressure and false accusations. He states that his teachings have been in private and in public, and they both have been congruent. Anybody that has heard him teach, Jesus says, you could ask them what I said. One of the officials slapped Jesus in the face for disrespecting the high priest, which was another uh, sign of an of a unfair trial. Annas really didn't feel like he was getting anywhere with Jesus, so he sent him to the real high priest, Caiaphas, his son-in-law. And John picks up with Peter's next two denials in the next verse. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of the disciples too, are you? He denied it saying, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. All four gospels record the three denials of Peter. But only John mentions that this last uh, questioning came from a relative of Malchus, the man that Peter had cut his ear off in the garden. He says, I saw you in the garden. Peter again denies being a follower of Jesus. And Matthew notes in his gospel that Peter even calls down curses on himself and denies even knowing Jesus. And then Matthew states, immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I think in these moments we see a strong contrast between Jesus and Peter. Jesus is willingly identifying himself. He succumbs to the arrest of the officials while Peter grabs a sword and whacks off the servant's ear. Jesus identifies himself by saying, 
I am he, while Peter denies Jesus by saying, I am not one of his disciples. Jesus is bold in the face of false accusations from powerful people, while Peter is timid and weak in the face of the powerless. Jesus is exposed and distinct while Peter tries to blend into the crowd. Both fulfilled prophecies about them. And I'm sure as you hear how Peter behaves, you like me can begin to identify with him because I'm sure like me, you've all, we've all done something foolish. Maybe we've all been ashamed of Jesus when somebody might accuse us of being one of his followers because we pray before our meal at school or work. We treat other people with respect. We show up for church on Sunday. We do things that Christians do and they antagonize us for that. Or maybe you and I just lack the faith and courage to do the right thing in tough spots. Or maybe we just choose the world more than we would choose allegiance to the kingdom of God. I'm glad this isn't the end of Peter's story. Most commentators indicate that the fire that Peter was warming himself by that night was made from charcoal. They get that cue from the original Greek word that indicates it's a charcoal fire. And John is the only gospel writer who writes about another encounter that Peter has by a charcoal fire that comes after Jesus dies and comes back to life. It's a tender moment. I'd love to tell you about it right now, but I want to encourage you to finish this journey with us all the way to the end of the year as we finish 2020 and continue to work through and complete our study through the Gospel of John. On that last Sunday of this year, we'll talk about this moment with Peter and Jesus at the charcoal fire. This isn't the final stop for Jesus either. There's one more place we'll look at him visiting today where he is dismissed, even trivialized by Pilate. Look at verses 28 through 32. When the Jewish leaders, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would have not handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Capital punishment was not a right afforded to anyone else other than the leadership of Rome. They alone reserved the right to execute criminals, and they mastered ways to bring excruciating pain on those they condemned to die. Crucifixion was one of the worst ways a person could die. And Caiaphas sent Jesus to Pilate because he was wanting the governor to, to provide an execution order. It was early in the morning, but most historians say that Roman leaders, they would get up early and do most of their work and knock it off by midday. The religious leaders were in a hurry to have Jesus sentenced and crucified because it was Friday and the next day was the Sabbath. They wanted him killed and dead by the time it was over. I wonder if you caught, caught the irony that's playing out right here in this moment. John records that the religious leaders didn't want to become ceremonially unclean. And that would have happened had they gone into the house where Pilate was because he was a Gentile. And the reason they didn't want to be unclean is because they wanted to celebrate the ongoing Passover festival. At the same time, they're collaborating with 
the Roman and Jewish leaders to kill the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, Messiah Jesus. You know, what's obvious with the presence of the Roman soldiers being dispatched to the garden is that Pilate was well aware. He had foreknowledge of what was taking place. And in this moment, he just kind of makes sport of the religious leaders. I think it's because he knew Jesus was really innocent. The religious leaders acknowledge their limitations. They cannot kill somebody uh, other than by stoning. And if they would have been able to play out their uh, sentence, Jesus would have died by stoning. But that wasn't how prophecy had indicated his death. It would be by crucifixion. Or in Jesus' own words, he would be lifted up on a pole. That's what he said to Nicodemus in John 3, verse 14. And he stresses the purpose. So that all who believe in him may have eternal life. You see, my friends, none of these events that we've looked at today are just historical. None of them are accidental. They are all providential. The plan of a gracious, loving God who had a way for that ultimately provides a sacrificial lamb in the suffering servant of Jesus, the Messiah. While the religious leaders and even the, the Roman officials thought that they were making all the decisions, Jesus was actually a part of God's good plan to save the world that was unfolding. We heard about some of that plan when we heard the words earlier in our service from Isaiah 53. Follow along as I share some of the additional verses that surround that passage we looked at as we communed with God. Isaiah says, He, meaning Jesus, the suffering servant, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like the root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who, yet of his generation, protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Yet it was the Lord's good will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Do you hear why all of that happened to Jesus? It's so that you and I could understand how much God loves us. Could understand how we can be forgiven, offered grace. That we can be redeemed. That we can be healed that we could be made whole. And I wonder as you've heard these events playing out in the life of Jesus, even this morning, you feel the tension building, the anticipation of what's happening. Can you see God's plan unfolding? Do you realize this is all happening so that you could know how much God loves you and wants to be reconciled with you, that he wants you to be in heaven in eternity and how he's made that possible? By giving Jesus... By allowing all these things to happen to him so that you and I could be loved, forgiven, free, and whole. It was the Lord's will for this to happen. 
And because it did, we received love and grace and forgiveness and peace and freedom and hope. And if it never happened, we would be alone. We would be guilty. We would be condemned. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, Kate and I made it to Cheetah Chase that day. He'd been looking forward to it all these months. And we watched as we waited in line. Actually, we waited about an hour that day in the line. It was the longest line we waited in all day. And we got almost to the platform where we could see it was about two or three boats that were soon to be ours next. And guess what happened? The ride broke down. Can you imagine, right? We've been there all day. We'd waited all that hour. And here it was right on the edge of getting to ride. And it breaks down. Not just once, it actually broke down three times before it was our turn to get in the boat. Did you think we were going anywhere? No way. I could see that look in his face. We were not going anywhere. And by that point in the day, we had driven there. We had been there all day. I felt like it would be a waste had we put all that time and effort and energy and waited all that time to go and ride Cheetah Chase and actually not get to experience it. You know, I just want to make the application for some of you here today. Some of you here today could probably rattle off the historical moments I've described about the life of Jesus. You would be able to even say that you know why God sent Jesus is because he was to die in your place. And your response is kind of like, yeah, that's nice. You know, you continue to want to just live life for yourself or waller in the life that it's become and not take advantage of what Jesus has done for you. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. The punishment that you deserve was on him. It's by his stripes that you're healed. And this morning, my heart would break if there's somebody here today who hears that and says, ah, that's, that's nice, maybe another time. That's a great offer, I'll think about it. There's no other hope. There's no other way. There's no other opportunity or option to experience love like you've never experienced before. To be reconciled with the God of the universe, to have life here on earth that's to the full and life eternal in heaven outside of what Jesus offers you. So my prayer today is if you haven't experienced that kind of love, that today would be a day where you would say yes to Jesus. You would begin to have a relationship with him and you'd begin to experience all that he went through for you. No, one simple way you can just let us know that you would like to do that is by texting the word now to 812-858-8668. It just lets us know that you would like to know more about how to have a relationship with God through what Jesus has done for you. It would be our privilege to share with you about what that looks like. It's because you relate a lot with Peter. You know the things that you've done that are stupid. You, you know the time you've turned your back on God. You know the mess that you've made out of life. And Jesus says, I want to offer you forgiveness, grace, healing. I want to help you be whole. Maybe the rest of us, maybe more than I could even count, kind of maybe identify with Jesus and the roller coaster he went on. We feel the pain of what it feels like to be betrayed by a friend. We've maybe had our presence be denied by somebody who excludes us from the group or just acts like we don't exist. Or maybe it's just the hurtful things that people have done to us. That, that causes us just to, to suffer and to really just 
hate life. I want you to know that Jesus' offer is not just for the spiritual. It's for the physical. It's for the emotional healing that his sacrifice provides. You can see that all throughout Isaiah 53. So my prayer is maybe if you're here today and you just need somebody to pray with you or you need some help just to walk through whatever might be going on in your life, you can use that same word and that same number. Now, 812-858-8668 to just let us know how we can pray with you, how we can walk alongside of you, how you can experience the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. A love that chases you down, that fights to your family, that leaves the 99. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. And yet Jesus still gives himself away. It's the never-ending, never-ending, overwhelming, reckless love of God. Do you pray with me? God, thank you for having a plan. I don't know that it's a plan that I would have put together. Doesn't seem like a lot of fun to be stabbed in the back, to be mocked, to be dismissed, trivialized, to be rejected by your friends, to ultimately be scourged and crucified and killed. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But God, it was your plan to do that so that we would know how much you love us, what extent of love that shows. God, you went through all that. You let your son go through all that so that we could be forgiven. We could be healed. We could be whole. God, my prayer is that anyone today who needs that in their life, God, wouldn't just shrug their shoulders, but they would say their hand, raise their hand and say, yes, uh, I, I want that. God, my prayer is that those of us who've experienced that kind of love and forgiveness and healing in our life, God, would not keep it to ourselves. God, you would send us to a world that so desperately needs to know how much you love them, the plan you have for their life, the hope that you offer, regardless of who's president, regardless of what disease or pandemic we're facing, God, regardless of our financial status, the health of our relationships, any of that, God, all that pales in comparison to your love and you being for us. God, I pray that you would help us to be strong in the power and the love that you have given us through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray right now. Amen.